Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament, beginning the debate on excess mortality in the United Kingdom. In breach of all public, uh, previous public health advice, in breach of our own carefully crafted expert pandemic plan, in breach of flagrant breach, the sensible and experienced advice from many professionals, those noble dissenters are being vindicated one by one, inevitably so, as the suppressed, shaming real-world evidence finally emerges. I'm not going to mention those who harass and discredit and ridicule the dissenters. They, they loudly paraded their egotistical virtue on social media, in the press and on television. I know exactly uh, what harassment feels like. And we inflicted social distancing, masking and school closures on healthy children at no risk from the virus. You're listening to The Sill with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Good morning, Harry. How are you? Good morning, Peter. I'm fine. How are you doing in Ontario? Staying warm. We had some pretty chilly weather here. We got down to minus 20-something with uh, wind chill yesterday, but today's warming up to minus 10, and in a few days it'll be up to plus 2 again. So I understand you've had some crazy fluctuations in Nova Scotia as well. Yeah, it's fairly cold. It's been sort of mildish and rainy, very little snow. Right up to this date, we've had very, very little snow, and the, the locals here promise me that this is very unusual and that we'll see our cars buried in snow at some point. So we'll see. And just so that people listening know that this is the 18th of January and this podcast will be featured on the 28th of January. So here we are in 2024, nearly three weeks into the year. And if you recall the same time in 2020, we still had not been alerted to the whole COVID situation. We were still clear at that point, although there were some grumblings about things that were happening in China and so on, but really nothing had been evident in the media on a political level, on a social level, mental illness, vaccines, the whole COVID scenario. And today, the podcast, which we've titled Clearing the COVID Cobwebs. But before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that neither Harry nor I have been vaccinated. We've both had COVID and we've both tested positive for COVID once and we've likely had it once or twice again since then, but neither one of us tested. So Harry and I just wanted to make that clear before we begin this conversation. So Harry, yes, I'm going to defer to you a lot today because I know that you have far more detailed information on what we're going to talk about today. My sentiments on this subject have basically remained the same. I've always felt that how can you go through what we've gone through and not ask yourself questions regardless of whether you're pro or con on whatever, whether it's the vaccine or anything else about policies and so on. And I know this is a word that I like to use sometimes, behooves, which no one uses. But it behooves me that people don't at least question some of the things that go on and seem to just put their head down and go with the program. And I know that for you, that's also a bit of a thorn in your side. So to open this up, tell me a little bit about your own feelings about the situation and this thing that I've expressed to you regarding the whole questioning of everything that's happened over the last three, four years and going forward. Well, Peter, I have to first say I'm mighty behooven to you for that question. <laughs> and it behooves me to answer it in the following way. 
Look, we're four years into it, basically. And it's time, I think, and we thought for this podcast to kind of take the lay of the land, to ask the question, where are we? Where have we come from? What have we come through? And what have we learned? And where should we go from here? And that's a very difficult, complex, multi-layered question. So to me, when you look around and you ask yourself the question, where are people at now? Where's the psyche of people in regards to this? And you look around and you see, well, first of all, you see people in masks still Mm -hmm. walking around. You still see people kind of trying to keep distance. At least I've noticed that. Less now, because people are a little bit more relaxed around it, but there's still this sense, this post-COVID, not (laughs) post-COVID, sense that people are still concerned and a little bit worried, and the powers that be are pushing the boosters and reminding us that COVID is still around and the hospitals are getting busy, yada, 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 yada. Uh, Sounds a lot like the early part of the pandemic, actually. Mm -hmm. Even though the virus has now mutated to a much milder kind of virus, people are still carrying a lot of the programmed thoughts that were given to them by the mainstream narrative. And that's concerning to me. I totally agree. Post-COVID, not post-COVID. There still is uncertainty as to where it begins and where it ends. Yeah, because the fact that hospitalizations are really down from the height of the pandemic And it is understood that Omicron, that variant, was a godsend and really, in a sense, brought an end to the emergency aspect of the pandemic. Still, people have in them, in this post-COVID, not post-COVID period, the same thought forms that were given to them about social distancing, about the importance of masking and all that stuff, even though the science at this time and post the emergency period is showing more and more that these interventions were less and less necessary to do at the time. And so we have to look at this now and try to assess what went right, what went wrong. A lot went wrong in my view. People may disagree with me, but I think we need to take a look at that and have a debate and have a discussion and have inquiries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some countries are beginning to do that, the UK being one of them. So there's a beginning of the perspective, but it's still a long ways away. I think we can all agree that there's been a tremendous falling. There's definitely been an opioid concern, a concern with the mental health of the population at large. Some sectors obviously more affected than others. I think those two things are fairly clear, certainly discussed. But the one area that is not discussed, which I know you've spent a fair bit of time with, I have to some degree, not to the same level as you, And that is what is referred to as excess deaths, which has surfaced, as you mentioned, in England, perhaps more strongly than it has here in Canada or the U.S. But this discussion about the number of excess deaths that have occurred during this period, which are still under investigation and fails to make the mainstream, you have discovered through your own investigation and your own follow-up with this particular issue. Right. I think it would be wrong to say that the mainstream media are completely ignoring this topic. They're just beginning now to look at it and talk a bit about it. For example, I found a BBC article 
that says, quote, more than 650,000 deaths were registered in the UK in 2022, which is 9% more than 2019. This represents one of the largest excess death levels outside the pandemic in 50 years. And then from the Globe and Mail here in Canada, quote, estimated excess mortality dipped in January and February, but the latest 2023 figures indicate it is about 15% to 20% higher than it was in 2020 and 2021, according to Tara Moriarty, an infectious disease researcher and co-founder of the grassroots group COVID-19 Resources Canada. Now, that's considerably lower than in 2022, quote, which was a horrific really, really bad year in Canada, but it's still higher than the first few years of the pandemic, unquote, she said. So we've got this pattern now in numerous countries, especially highly vaccinated countries, of these excess deaths happening, and the authorities don't know particularly why, although many of the signs are pointing towards the vaccine. People don't want to bite the bullet on that, except in the UK, as I said, they're beginning to debate in Parliament this issue and beginning to raise the questions that really need to be looked at in terms of the relationship between these excess deaths and the vaccine, because there seems to be no other common denominator in this time period we're talking about than the introduction of mass vaccination. So that's ongoing and it's still up in the air but it's becoming more and more in the public eye, which is a good thing. The world-shaking scandal of jabbing people who'd already had COVID, which at a stroke almost entirely demolishes the credibility of our public health policies at this period. We completely ignored natural immunity. That one fact ought to be a red flag of gigantic proportions, but no one's listening. And I haven't got time to discuss the fact that jab was, was not pulled when it became clear that an incredible one in 800 doses administered led to serious adverse events and consequences. The rotavirus vaccine was pulled entirely after causing an adverse event rate of one in 10,000. For the 2009 swine flu vaccine, it was an adverse event of one in 35,000 that were harmed, and it was then pulled off the market. The COVID jab is still being pushed and it's seriously harming people. Inevitably, it's a rate much higher than one in 800 because most people are being exposed to multiple doses of the vaccine with the, uh, the same risk, adverse event risk, at each dose. And for the sake of clarification, because I think there's a point here that should be made regarding excess deaths, typically, historically, excess deaths have always sort of averaged out. So if one year it jumped one or two percentage points, sometimes the next year it would drop. So it was always in a certain range, an expected range of fluctuation. But what's notable here is that since 2020, 2021, that percentage has not corrected. It has maintained the elevated levels right through to the present, which is an anomaly in itself. So anyone that disputes the fluctuation part of it, in this particular case, the last three or four years do not match any previous historical record in excess death fluctuations. Is that correct? Yes. And even the more worrisome part about all this is that a lot of these excess deaths are happening in the younger cohort from 20s, 30s to 65 or so. 
are bearing the brunt of these excess deaths, and many of them are connected to cardiovascular issues, myocarditis, etc., which was one of the side effects that derailed the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, along with thrombosis and blood clots and that sort of thing. And it became understood that the younger cohort were in danger of the side effects of myocarditis. This was known some time ago. And now here we are post-mass vaccination, and we're seeing these rising cases in the younger cohort post-vaccination. So it's very concerning, very disconcerting, and governments and health officials need to bite the bullet on this and really look at it objectively. Now, there's also another important sector that I've heard a lot about. I can't verify everything that I've heard, obviously, but it's come up over and over again, even in discussions with people that we've interviewed in other countries and other discussions that we've had, and that's among athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were these reports that came out about athletes kind of dropping dead on the pitch all around the world, talking about the excess numbers of young people who are very physically fit and very sound, but stressing their heart produced a very, very bad reaction post-vaccination. And people, again, were being accused of being conspiracy theorists, of promulgating misinformation, the usual garbage that people throw at people who are concerned and want to express their concern and, and their dissent. But here we are now with these excess deaths in young people showing themselves post-vaccination, And look at a survey in the U.S. showed that 50% of people believe that the vaccine, the jab, is responsible for most of these excess deaths. So the population is not stupid. And the population is saying, look, there's something going on here. Why are we not examining this? Why are we giving big pharma a pass on this? They already have no liability for the side effects that have harmed millions of people around the world. So it behooves us, here's that word again, to actually look into this seriously. You mentioned 50%. Let's use that number. If in fact that number is correct, give or take a few percentage points. It's interesting to me when supposedly 80% of the population is vaccinated And yet 50% believe that may be causing some problems. That means that even the people who have taken the vaccination are now questioning. Yeah, that's very true. And yet the mainstream narrators, the health officials, keep pushing more and more boosters. Even the European Medicines Agency's head of vaccines strategy, Marco Cavallari, Mm -hmm. recently said at a news briefing, there is no data supporting the broad effectiveness of fourth boosters. And there was a significant study in Israel that showed that fourth doses of the COVID-19 vaccine don't appear to offer significant protection against catching Omicron. So this effort, and you see it on TV, you see it on ads on American television, pushing the booster and on Canadian television, pushing the booster, even though they have little to no effect, is really disconcerting. Again, why are they pushing this narrative when there's no evidence backing up the efficacy of these shots? Now, maybe for a certain tiny percentage of the population, the very seriously compromised or the very elderly, there may be some benefit to it. But most of us, it is well acknowledged, have already had covid probably numerous times, we have strong natural immunity 
which the mainstream narrators refused to recognize through the pandemic, which was, again, extremely disconcerting. And to me, it was a sign that they were really intentionally not going there to push the narrative, to push the vaccine, and to push the protocols. So this is what we're looking at as we look back at that three-year period. Yes. And also, I think we need to make it clear that there might be applications where part of this was necessary, as you said. And even in Canada, we know that something like 80 plus percent of the deaths that did occur or the severe situations that occurred in Canada were among the 80 plus age sector demographic. The other thing that I often wonder is there's a divide amongst our own family and friends. Some are vaccinated, some aren't. And yet, all of us, have gotten COVID. Yeah, well, sure. Without exception, whether you are vaccinated or not, that in itself to me begs the question. Now, the argument that comes back sometimes is that, well, if I didn't have my vaccination, it could have been much worse. Now, I do agree that there are people who have a much higher propensity for having a serious situation, as you say, those who are immune compromised or those who are elderly. But for people that we associate with on a regular basis, there doesn't seem to have been much of a difference in terms of what's actually happened with COVID itself. We still all got it. Right. And the point is that in the original understanding of what a true vaccine is and what it's supposed to do is that it's supposed to actually give you immunity. You're not supposed to be able to get the virus and then pass it on, which is why this whole mRNA vaccine business was controversial because it doesn't prevent you from catching the virus and passing it on. It might offer some help in terms of the severity of the symptoms. It seems to have shown that in the testing. Good. That's all good. But it's like taking an Advil for a headache. It just tamps down the symptoms and that's fine. But it doesn't prevent you from getting the headache, which was implied by the authorities when they were pushing the vaccine on the population. They implied big time and in some cases said it outright, lying to us, that this would prevent the spread of the virus. And it did not do that. So let's talk about fallout here because it's ongoing and how the PTSD or shell shock factor that you and I have discussed, mm. that people are just being driven still by their fears and how it's affecting their daily life, their interactions, our interactions with family members, with friends, with business associates, and that it's still there. Not only the obvious, but the malaise that doesn't seem to go completely away. There's a level of anxiety or depression that's palpable, even if it has subsided somewhat and people are trying to go back to the normal routine. I don't think that that is happening or will happen completely. What are your thoughts on that? Well, your allusion to PTSD, shell-shocked, I think is really appropriate. People have gone through a period where they have been shell-shocked. The barrage of fear-mongering, that we faced the coercion to take this experimental drug treatment called mRNA vaccine, the stress about losing or potentially losing jobs, pulling our children out of school unnecessarily, on and on and on, really gave us a form of PTSD. And combined with a kind of mass psychosis that set 
the mainstream decision makers out there. All of that has left us in this very strange, dazed and confused place, post, not post, (laughs) COVID, where people are still, as you say, in a state of kind of underlying anxiety, not really knowing who to trust. Many of them have dropped their trust in the vaccines, period, and are not doing any boosters. So that's evidence of kind of coming out of it, of kind of getting deprogrammed in a way. And as the science emerges and new evidence emerges showing the lack of efficacy of these interventions, of masking, of the social distancing, of all of the stuff, most all of the stuff that was put on people during those three years, it's very difficult to kind of center oneself again and be clear again and understand what happened. Because that's where we're at. We're at the place where we have to ask the question, what happened? And be clear about it. And to me, the what happened also begs another thing to be discussed. And that is what was my sort of pet peeve with the whole thing. To me, it was never about whether or not you agreed with the reasons for the vaccine. To me, ultimately, it came down to whether or not you had the choice to take it. And to me, that remains. It's still about that. Whether or not we agree, everyone is entitled to their own point of view. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. But what we're talking about here is something that can alter, radically alter your physiology, whether you agree or not is another question. And so that to me means that we should be given the choice to take it or not to take it. So I think that's still the bottom line problem, notwithstanding all the other things that we've talked about, which are evident, as I mentioned earlier, about the opioid situation, about the mental health situation, the elevated number of suicides and other related issues that are compounding this whole investigative process. Right. And you've mentioned really two things in that one question, the whole human freedom element was really put at the forefront during the pandemic when these protocols were pushed on us and we were coerced into taking the jab for the general good, for the good of your fellow citizens. They had all of these good little memes pop up that put pressure on and made people feel guilty if they didn't go along with the program, so to speak. And so what happened was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms became like a piece of toilet paper, ultimately. It wasn't worth the paper it was written on because it was overridden to such a degree that people were invaded in the deepest core of their health and their bodies. My body, myself, my rights, that whole element uh, that was important in the feminist movement was simply overridden. And so a lot of the dissent at the time was over personal freedom. And that was looked upon as being a kind of a bad thing for you to talk about personal freedom when people were dying in hospitals in Italy and all around the world, in New York City and all that. And how dare you talk about your freedom and your individual freedom when people are dying around you, yada, yada, yada. All of these kinds of debates and discussions were happening. But there's no question that our freedoms were overridden for those three years in a big and profound way. And as far as the health issue is concerned, yeah, these excess deaths are probably the best indicator of the repercussions of the stress on the human system and of the effects of the vaccine on our immune systems. And it was predicted by people like Geertz Vandenbosch, who predicted that mass vaccination during the height of a pandemic is guaranteed to mutate the virus into worse and worse virus configurations 
more virulent. And the results on the immune system would not be good either because of the specificity of the mRNA vaccines. It would mean that the immune system would not be as adept at handling other kinds of pathogens. So we're seeing that. We're seeing the results of a non-evidence-based approach to fighting this pandemic, to fighting the virus. We're seeing that now unfold. So when you mention the word freedom, what do you say to those people who would argue, and according to the statistics, they would be the majority, how do you defend the freedom of those who want to feel protected? They argue that you're endangering them. So what do you say to people who think that way? Well, stay home if you're that worried. But you have no right to put the people who want to protect their individual bodily integrity in quarantine camps like they did in Australia and other places. Fine, stay home if you're that worried. Wear four masks, wear a hazmat suit when you go out, but let the rest of us live our lives as we wish. That's the nature of basic human freedom. Unless you can prove to me that non-symptomatic Harry going out into the community is a danger to you, unless you can prove that, Go away. Just stay home. Let's talk about the effects that this has had with the distrust that we now feel on a much deeper level. It seems that the polarity has only increased in the last three or four years. How do we correct this distrust of institutions? The so-called experts that we rely on now come into question We're constantly debating what information is right, what information is wrong. What's the solution here? How do we slowly come out of this? I don't have an answer to that, to be honest with you. I think the divisions, as you say, are still pretty deep. The distrust of uh, institutions, especially health institutions, has gone through the roof. There are people out there who will not go into a hospital ever again, no matter what. They will not take any more vaccines. So this whole vaccine hesitancy thing is through the roof, contrary to what the mainstreamers were hoping would happen. And so the whole thing has backfired on those people who were pushing this agenda. Now, I'm not saying that these people pushing that agenda were evil people or all colluding together, but the nature of mass psychosis doesn't require evil intent. It just requires confusion and delusion and a certain kind of reliance on lack of evidence-based science to create disaster. And this is what has happened. We've come through, I think, one of the greatest medical disasters in the history of medicine, and or the greatest, I would say. And we are in this post-non-post-COVID period where we're trying to understand what happened, who was accountable, who should be made accountable, if possible, for the mass damage that was done to the population beyond COVID itself. I don't really think we can rely on the political or the economic measurements in order to begin the healing of all this. I think it's really up to us as individuals to collectively begin to at least talk to one another and to try in any way we can to coexist. Well, yes, it is up to us in a way. I do think, though, it is also up to the institutions themselves to reflect on how they responded during the pandemic, how they colluded with other institutions to push an agenda which caused harm, deep harm. Science itself has taken a beating through all of this. 
people are less trusting of what science has to say. So scientists themselves have to talk amongst themselves and debate and discuss and try to right the ship in some form or other so that the integrity of how science operates can find itself again and people can begin again to say, yes, science is clear, it doesn't have political agendas, and it is connected to truth and to reality in such a way that we can trust it again. And we'll see if that happens. It's hard to know at this point because we're in this transitional place, which is the perfect time to have this podcast and to initiate these discussions. We mustn't forget. The main thing is people like me who were not deeply harmed through the pandemic, but experienced and saw other people's distress and damage. We should continue this discussion until we come to clarity about it and not just drop it because it's uncomfortable to think about or bothersome, or there are wars to think about. Yes, there are wars to think about, and they're important. But this thing that we went through stole three years out of our lives, and it should not be just allowed to wash into the years of history unexamined. I think it's incumbent upon us as individuals to begin that process. So if we on the streets, if we in our neighborhoods, if we in our schools, churches, wherever we convene wherever we get together to do things together to cooperate. We need to begin that process. We need to sort of forgive each other, not to forget, but to work from this point forward and try to make that sort of mass psychosis reverse to something that we all understand as helpful as a community to one another. Because I think if that happens, the political and economic measuring stick moves with that to some degree. One of the reasons why many things happened is because we gave up that part of ourselves. We trusted, we went with the policies, we accepted, at least the majority accepted, certain ways of being. And you can see in every situation, historically speaking, when that happens, when you give up your personal thinking, your ability to process things within your own families, within your own neighborhoods, that power becomes lopsided to the point where right now, for example, I feel it's very, very difficult for some of these things to change as quickly as we'd like to because there are so many things that are associated with the decisions that were made. Political, economic, there's a lot at stake for those that drove this whole thing to begin with. And so I don't necessarily think that they will make that change as quickly as you or I would make it. Yes, which I think is why we need to have public inquiries. We need to have a level of accountability that these people who we elected and trusted to serve our best interests are taken to account and found innocent or guilty or what have you in the court of history. At the same time, there needs to be a level of forgiveness. And I think that's where people talking to each other from across this divide need to find a way of forgiving each other for their excesses and for their rantings and for their insults and all of these things in order to begin to discuss again and become human again and center ourselves inside a society that is not fear-based and can actually come to some understanding of what happened and why we did what we did or didn't do what we didn't do, and then carry on from there. And look around you. Even if you don't understand science, even if you don't understand statistics, even if you don't understand all these things that we've discussed during this podcast, 
Look around you. What does what you see around you say? You know that you've been sick. You've had family, friends, associates, business partners, whatever, that have been ill. You've been able to actually experience, see what's happened over the last few years. Does that match the message that we're getting? If the answer is no, ask yourself some questions. Right. And this whole thing about uh, anecdotal evidence You read accounts of people online talking about, well, my neighbor took the jab and then uh, died two weeks later, and my uncle took the jab, and now he's got severe heart conditions and issues, and da-da-da-da-da. You say, well, that's just an anecdote. But when there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these anecdotes, that adds up to a kind of evidence that points in a certain direction that we should take a very deep look at. So let's talk to each other, let's share our stories, and let's believe each other when we talk about these anecdotes. There is some truth there to be understood, and let's listen to each other. Let's begin to uh, bridge the divide, and let's find our way towards a new perspective on our own health and the health of the general population. And also look at the broader issue of health in general, what we eat, how we look after ourselves. It can open up many other very positive discussions about our general health to begin with and our ability to handle adversity in these situations because there are situations where there are emergency measures required. But for the most part, a lot of it is based on how we conduct our daily lives and how we interact and so on. And when you talk about the ability to get together and to discuss forgiveness, as we've both mentioned, is very, very important. But also to understand that we need to know that our rights will be respected, that we have the right to choose. It's much more difficult to engage in conversations when you take that away from people, because the focus is not on debate or discussion. The energy goes to expecting that my rights will be not only respected, but adhered to. So don't force that on me. I think that's where a lot of the anger and dysfunction lies, is that people have felt that they didn't matter, that their choices didn't matter. That's absolutely true. And in the face of a lack of science-based evidence, when these measures were put on us, in a way, many of us felt insulted because they were treating us like children who couldn't read a scientific paper and understand what's in it, who couldn't look up studies on our own and see how masks have never been shown to work against a a respiratory virus, let alone COVID. And looking at how even just a few days ago in the U.S., a hospital in California has reinstituted the mask mandate for people entering the hospital against all evidence. There's no evidence showing any efficacy of that, and yet they've reintroduced it because they've, whatever, I don't know why, but they think somehow it's going to be protective of people in the hospital and those entering it. But these masks have not been shown to work and never have been shown to work. And so all of these things have to be kind of balanced against each other. And the ship is still finding ways of righting itself. And hopefully we will find our sanity again at some point in the near future. I pray. So before we close here, let me just address what you just said, the hospital one. That's a good one because you expressed how it goes against what the scientific research shows. What about the people who say, look, what's the big deal? The hospital is asking us to wear a mask. So when I go into the hospital, I'll wear a mask. 
The big deal is that you're being asked to do something that is not helpful at all. And it's just a sign of showing some sort of compassion when it actually is meaningless. And I'm not interested in doing meaningless acts to signal my virtue. Either it works or it doesn't. If it doesn't work, I'm not wearing it. Sorry. That's very, very clear, Harry. I go back to respecting individual rights in the face of all these things that are going on. I'm being simplistic here, but for me, nothing has changed in that regard over the last three or four years. To me, it's still about having the choice. Yeah, and for most of us, it is still about having the choice. So we'll see what happens. I am hopeful that we'll get through this and find a better balance and that we'll learn some lessons from these last four years that we can apply to future pandemics because they will come, of course. It's been tremendously enlightening for me, including understanding many people in my life better and knowing what makes people tick and seeing how things affect people. I appreciate some of the lessons learned here. And like you, I'm hopeful that things will improve. As always, we are happy to hear your comments or observations. I hope that this exchange between Harry and I had some value and that hopefully will permeate in a positive way. Indeed. Ciao, Peter. Ciao, Harry. The Sill is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.